Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 77, Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. A talk of dreams, too secret and too close. Come, civil knight, come. Give me my sin again. Two households, both alike in dignity. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. She is a Capulet. His name is Romeo. And a Montague. I have been feasting with mine enemy. Love me. By yonder blessed moon I vow is as boundless as the sea. Let Romeo hence in haste, else when he is found, that hour is his last. Can I go forward when my heart is here? Shame come to Romeo. Shall I speak ill of him that is my husband? Peace! Peace. I hate the word. Or will you walk? Love will give me strength. Give me my Romeo.
Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. In other words, we determine whether or not it is required reading. As always, I'm your host, Tom Panarese, and with me is the Rosaline to my Benvolio. Why? Because we both survived the play. Stella, how are you? It is true. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think if there is anyone else. Um, I think that's fine. We don't know too much about her. Well, she she seems to have a strict moral code about giving it out uh, before marriage. She's going to become a nun. Yeah, so I can <laughs> I can definitely go with that. Get Rosalind sounds fine, especially the Caitlin Devers interpretation of her in Rosalind mm. on Hulu. So yes, hello and welcome to me. Now I'm in bright and cheery today, but tomorrow will be a sad and sorrowful day. And I'm sorry that we're not covering Julius Caesar, but we're doing something else with Shakespeare. Yeah, we cover. I think we covered Julius Caesar in March when we covered. Yeah, we should do it every March. Oh yeah, we should make it. Just a rotating <laughs> play on. It's our and, annual yeah, I, well, I wonder Caesar how many coverage. people would get sick of that. <laughs> Happy betrayal day. Indeed. So, anyway, so I'd ask how you were doing, but I think you gave me the uh, the context of all of that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There you go. Oh yeah. So, but yeah, this is this is a this is a bit of a punt. <laughs> If I'm being completely honest, and we'll get into why in a minute, but we are doing Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare's easily like in the top five of Shakespeare's most famous plays, right? Like you've got mm-hmm. Hamlet. I would say Hamlet and this, and then you have stuff like you know Lear and Macbeth and Othello and maybe Midsummer's and As You Like It and you know maybe The Merchant of Venice, but. And I'm trying to think of other ones like when you start going down the Twelfth uh, Night and stuff like that, or, or the Taming of the Shrew. You just kind of start going down the list, and then you, the, the people who have read them are less and less. But I would say, just as far as no notable Shakespeare plays, and probably the one that everybody this is probably the one everybody's read at one point or another, um, more than Hamlet even. Mm. So, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> so. But um, we are going to talk about the play and, and have our usual discussion. But as always, we talk about um, how we came about this. Um, what is your history with this play, Stella? And it is, is it what I think it is? Yeah, it's school. It's school. It was ninth grade English. We did not read the entirety. We definitely read excerpts, but meaty enough. And I do uh-huh. wonder, thinking about that, because it was in one of those thick like literature textbooks. Yeah. Because I remember using my brother and sister's copy, like really rough looking copy here, of uh, the new Folger Library version uh, from the 90s and having to skip around and things. And I do wonder now, looking at all of the, because I did not recall it, all of the sexual innuendo and penis jokes, particularly coming from Mercutio, that perhaps those are things that were excised. But we got enough an idea of who Romeo and Juliet were. And then in that class, we also watched the 
what is that 70s version 68. of 60s yeah. okay um which of course now or most recent more recently had come under heat because those two actors were basically young adults slash children yes. and were kind of put into positions you know in the in the movie that should not have been um i feel like there was a topless scene with with juliet um i feel like i recall seeing her breasts yes which um, is you see, yeah well, you see romeo's for like a butt and you see one of um juliet's boobs it's a right yep. of, it was a rite of passage for many uh, high school teenagers i'm sure i'm sure yeah so i don't know and and you know of course i really do enjoy Enjoy the Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes version. I had seen that, you know, around when it had come out, but mm-hmm. didn't, I think, recognize again, you know, certain things that were happening because I was just when I was younger. So it's something that I would like to revisit now because I would better understand it, just like I have this play. And then other interpretations, you know, Romeo must die, uh, things like that. So I feel like it's it's been in my life for a while, starting in ninth grade, but I don't think I've reread it since this, what we're doing here today. Mm. I, I, I know that probably I've revisited certain passages and my previous school had done Shakespeare competition. So I'm sure I've heard different monologues multiple times, but never sat down and fully read this. I think this might be that first time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Just like you, I read it in ninth grade first time. I think we read the whole thing. Mr. Valenti may have cut out a couple of scenes just to, for the for brevity's sake, um, I the all the uh, most of the dirty jokes went over my head at the time, and and that's one of those things where recently our um, governor has has waved his has waved his magic executive wand and declared that anything sexually explicit, um, you know, be be they come with a warning label or a form or some crap. And um, we as a department are like, yes, we can't teach Shakespeare. And one of the things about it is that Shakespeare is so incomprehensible to some teenagers, they don't get all the jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've explained, I, I, um, uh, I actually was just teaching, Mac- I'm teaching Macbeth to AP lit students right now. And I was explaining the Porter scene uh, after they read it and they were just like laughing so hard. I'm like, yeah, I said, I'm sorry. I should have put the explicit label on this. They're just laughing. And that's one of those things about this whole thing where like when it's a quote classic, they don't seem to mind, but we know why there's really an issue with that. And I'm not going to get into it because it's not the topic of our play. Um, but uh, yeah, we watched the, we read the play. Um, it wasn't a textbook, I believe. Um, in fact, when I, um, and I teach it now because I teach it to ninth graders and I use a textbook because it's in so many ninth grade English textbooks. It's kind of like a rite of passage for many a ninth grader in the United States. Um, it's all over curricula. Uh, the 1968 uh, movie version by directed by Franco Zeffirelli was the film we saw. We, we didn't have to have a permission form to watch that scene. But uh, we did watch the scene. He did warn us about it. And it was just kind of like it was slightly scandalous. And after a while, you're just like, whatever. Uh, I have since seen the, the 96 version of Leo DiCaprio. And um, and yeah. And, and so I've read this play 
many, many, many times at this point, or listen to an audio recording while reading it along with a bunch of ninth grade students who couldn't care less. So um, it, it is one of those things. So we're going to get into into that. Like, how do you get teens? How do you like? How do you get a modern audience interested in this? Like, it, it has mm-hmm. a reputation. And it has these sort of capital C classic or capital C canon reputation. So, you know, is it so we, we can also talk about the argument of whether or not you should get rid of this because it's not contemporary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so so it's 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 well-worn territory, at least for me. And um, I was in the middle of teaching it when I decided to use it for this episode. So that's why I say it's a bit of a punt because I didn't have to do much reading. I was already in the middle of this. I'm cheating a little bit, but so anyway, um, we're going to get into the context of the book, real life of the author type of stuff. And then the plot synopsis and, I'm doing what we've done with other Shakespeare plays, and so instead of giving you the long bio of Shakespeare himself, I'm just going to focus on the history of Romeo and Juliet and the adaptations and some of the background behind it. My sources for this are uh, Wikipedia, of course, and uh, the Norton Anthology of Shakespeare. Shakespeare? Shakespeare. All right, so... (laughs) All right, so the story of Romeo and Juliet was not created out of whole cloth by William Shakespeare. In fact, Shakespeare took his material from Arthur Brooks's Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet, which was a long English poem based on a French prose version of the story by Pierre Bust. I'm going to butcher these names, so just I apologize in advance. Boistow, I'm going to say that, who is adapting something, adapting something, all the way back to the origin point of the story by Italian author Masuccio Salerantano in 1476. I'm of Italian descent, and I butchered that. Jesus, Paris. All right, so, or is the source material much older, actually? Well, pretty much, because the play takes its cues from Pyramus and Thisbe, a story in your boy Ovid's Metamorphoses. Two lovers' parents hate one another, and there's a double suicide that results from a misunderstanding of one believing the other has died. What's also of note is that the play that Shakespeare produced immediately preceding Romeo and Juliet was A Midsummer Night's Dream. And in that play, there is a depiction of Pyramus and Thisbe that's put on at the end of the play in the last sentence, in the last scene or so. Uh, But it has a much more happy Love Conquers All ending. The full name of the play is The Most Excellent and Lamentable Tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. And speculation and scholarship place it somewhere in the late 1590s. As for its original performances, Romeo and Juliet ranks with Hamlet as one of Shakespeare's most performed plays. Its many adaptations have made it one of the most enduring and famous stories. Even in Shakespeare's lifetime, it's extremely popular. Scholar Gray Taylor measures it as the sixth most popular of Shakespeare's plays in the period after the death of Christopher Marlowe and Thomas Kidd, but before the ascendancy of Ben Jonson, during which Shakespeare was London's dominant playwright. The date of the first performance is unknown. The first quattro, which was printed in 1597, reads that it hath been often and with great applause played publicly, setting the first performance before that date, which is 1597. 
The Lord Chamberlain's men were certainly the first to perform it. Besides their strong connections with Shakespeare, the second quattro actually, quarto, sorry, misconstrued that, quarto, quarto, actually names one of its actors, Will Kemp, instead of Peter, in a line of Act 5. Richard Burbage was probably the first Romeo, being the company's chief tragedian, and Master Robert Goff, who was a boy, the first Juliet. Because if those of you, even if you study, you don't even need to study Shakespeare. It's something you learn when you first um when you first learn anything about Shakespeare is that back in Elizabethan times, women were not allowed to be on stage. So they often use uh, boys as in the women parts. The premiere is likely to have been at the theater with early other early productions at the curtain. Romeo and Juliet is one of the first Shakespeare plays to have been performed outside of England. A shortened and simplified version was performed in Nordlingen in 1604. Now, as far as adaptations and influences, the play has had an enormous legacy. Um, I'm really not going to get into all of it. There's literally an entire Wikipedia page about Romeo uh, and Juliet on film. Um, so I just kind of cherry picked what I found most interesting or most important. So it's been put on too many times to count. Uh, it's been adapted into several films. Um, if you want to see a televised stage version starring Ian McKellen and Judy Dench from the late 1970s, you can find bits and pieces of it on YouTube. It's directed by Trevor Nunn. Um, it was a, there's also clips from the current Globe Theater, the National Theater in London. Um, I have a lot of fun with this when I'm showing certain famous scenes because I show them like the balcony scene, I show them the balcony scene, like played like four different ways. So you can see like how a performance can affect it. And um, that actually got some attention. They were like, oh, they started to notice how tone and staging and stuff does. So I, I thank, thank you, YouTube, for actually being useful every once in a while and not just simply showing us the depths of the cesspool that is humanity in your comment section. Anyway, uh, Romeo and Juliet has also been adapted into a ballet by Sergei Prokofiev. It has been adapted into at least 24 operas. And it has been the inspiration for songs by pop music artists from Peggy Lee to Dire Straits, to Taylor Swift. Film and television-wise, notable adaptation include 1936's Romeo and Juliet, directed by George Cukard, starring Leslie Howard and Norma Shearer as the titular lovers. John Barrymore played Mercutio, and Basil Rathbone played Tybalt. The film was a huge hit. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. In 1968, Franco Zeffirelli directed a version that we have mentioned at least a couple times already in this episode, starring Leonard Whiting as Romeo and Olivia Hussey as Juliet, and Michael York was cast as Tybalt. This version is probably the most famous, partially because its actors were both teenagers at the time. Whiting, and if you ever watch a scene from this, um, Leonard Whiting looks exactly like Zac Efron. And the kids always catch that whenever I show clips from that movie. They're like, why is Zac Efron on the screen? I'm like, no, that's not Zac Efron. Anyway, he was 16. She was 15. And uh, because there's nudity uh, in the movie, that's the other reason everybody remembers it. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. It won two for Best Cinematography and Best Costume Design. And in fact, as Stella mentioned uh, toward the beginning of the show, uh, both actors have recently sued Paramount over the filming of their nude scenes, saying that they were... Uh, 
both both were so young. So I don't know what's come of that, uh, by the way. I think that was fairly recent, too. Mm-hmm. Another version that is famous to both Gen X and Millennials is 1996's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. This is a film version directed by Baz Luhrmann that stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Romeo, Claire Danes as Juliet, Paul Rudd as Paris, Pete Postlethwaite as Friar Lawrence, Harold Perrineau as Mercutio, John Leguizamo as Tybalt, Paul Sorvino as Lord Capulet, Brian Dennehy as Lord Montague, and Christina Pickles as Lady Montague. I don't know who out there has seen it, but it's basically, if you haven't, it is a 90-minute long 1990s music video. It really is. It's it's. I mean, it's Baz Luhrmann, who has directed Elvis recently, but uh, most famously directed Moulin Rouge. This was his first big movie after directing Strictly Ballroom, I believe. Um, Did you say most recently? Directed Moulin Rouge. Oh, sorry, that was a slip. Um, no, he directed most famously directed. Oh, okay, because most recently the Elvis, Elvis yeah. but most yeah. recently Elvis, most famously is probably Moulin Rouge. That that seems to have the most legs to it. And then Strictly Ballroom was his breakthrough, and this came right after that. Uh, this is DiCaprio is about twenty one, but he looks like he's thirteen. Claire Danes had just finished my so called life. So she was about 15, 16, and Paul Rudd, well, Paul Rudd doesn't age, and, and the movie is completely unrealistic. So who in their right mind pictured Leonardo DiCaprio over Paul Rudd, but we can just let people debate that. So um, the soundtrack, by the way, was enormous. Um, it, it sold in huge numbers, and it gave us, there was a, a lot of alternative and other rock, 90s rock bands on it, and famously gave us the... 90s pop hit Love Fool by the Cardigans. So. All right. So that is, uh, and oh, most recently, I mean, there, there have been other film adaptations since there, but there most recently has been a kind of a, not an adaptation, but a in-universe movie, uh, Rosaline, which was on Netflix. I have yet to watch it, but you said you have. What was your take on that? Was it, is it any good? Do you recommend it? Well, Tom, you know that I recommend it because I've mentioned it at least three times to you. <laughs> So, yes, I do recommend Rosalind. It's from her perspective of everything that's going on Mm -hmm. and trying to she ends up trying to break up Romeo and Juliet. But it's also, I would say, metatextual and fourth wall breaking Mm -hmm. because Juliet at one point is explaining her plan about the sleeping potion and Rosalind looks to somebody who's there with her i won't spoil these things and said like that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard (laughs) and then there's a beat and she said you didn't already take that did you and then Juliet immediately passes out so there's definitely a commentary on things that we'll probably talk about and and i think critiques on actions that characters are doing that seem insane so i find it very amusing uh i like Caitlin Dever, so I think if you've already seen her and know what she can do, I think you'll you will take a liking to her pretty quickly. And so yeah, it was it was very fun. Okay. So um yeah, it's I I am I'm slow to watch movies these days. I did watch everything everywhere all at once the other day, so but um yeah, so I, I will I, I will eventually get around to it though, because I am kind of curious. I think it, that would be kind of that would be kind of fun to show it's in its entirety two freshmen after watching the, the play or reading the play and just kind of doing some assignment with it, like about metatextual commentary. Cause they they always think they're, 
you know, they always think they're the smartest person in the room when they're watching a movie. So, you know, yeah. why don't you just do this? It's like, which is like half of Romeo, but you're like, because Romeo is an idiot. So anyway, let's get to the plot synopsis, shall we? Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventures piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end could not remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. So begins our play, which is the story of two warring aristocratic families of Verona in Italy, the Montagues and the Capulets. The feud is an ancient mutiny indeed, and I'm pretty sure that everyone involved doesn't remember how or why it started. But lately it's flared up, and we open with some Montagues and Capulets running into one another on the street. Words and obscene gestures are exchanged, and a fight breaks out. Benvolio, a Montague, tries to step in and stop the fighting, but is overruled by Tybalt, a Capulet, who escalates it. Soon a brawl breaks out that even Lord Montague and Lord Capulet, who are the fathers of our titular characters, want to join. It's eventually stopped by Prince Aeschylus, who says that this is the third brawl in these last few weeks, and he decrees that if he catches any of them fighting again, the punishment will be death. With that out there, the fight breaks up and everyone goes their separate ways. The Montagues hang around to ask Benvolio about the behavior of their son, Romeo. Apparently, he's been shutting himself in his room, drawing the curtains and listening to the cure all day because he's absolutely depressed. Right, he's not listening to The Cure because this isn't 1986, but he would have if it were the 80s. Anyway, Romeo is depressed, and when we see him, he whines about it, and he whines about it, and he whines about it some more. What's he depressed about, by the way? Well, there's this girl named Rosaline on whom he has a massive crush. There's two problems, though. First of all, he, she, she doesn't even know he exists. And second, she's committed to herself to becoming a nun. This has thrown Romeo into a tailspin, and his parents want Benvolio to help him get out of it. We then cut to the Capulet household, where Lord Capulet is talking to County Paris about Paris's intentions to marry Juliet, who is Capulet's daughter. Paris is a great catch. He's rich. He's part of the same aristocratic circles in which they live. He's Paul Rudd. And on paper, this is a great joining of the houses. But Lord Capulet says the decision is ultimately up to Juliet. He then decides to throw a party where the two of them would be introduced. And really, it's going to take a little bit of convincing to get Juliet to say yes to marriage anyway. She's only 13. And despite the fact that her mother tells her that, well, I was wet and pregnant at 13, Juliet's not interested in marriage. Her nurse tries to play up Paris's um, assets as an appeal, but that's not really convincing enough either. Still, to appease her mother, and probably just to shut her up, Juliet says, you know what? She says, I, I'll look to like. So in other words, all right, you can introduce me to Paris, but I'm not promising anything. Speaking of the party that they're going to, 
Romeo and Benvolio have gotten wind of the event and have also found out that Rosaline is going to be there. Benvolio thinks this is a perfect opportunity for Romeo to meet other girls. Romeo thinks it's a great opportunity to show his cousin that Rosaline is worth all of this moping around. So they go, along with their friend Mercutio, and they decide to crash the party. Now, Mercutio has been invited, because Mercutio is neither Capulet nor Montague. He is actually related to Prince Aeschylus. But anyway, like, how do they get into this party? It's a masquerade ball, so they're all in masks. And they go incognito, but they are spotted by Tybalt. And Tybalt wants to draw his sword and kill Romeo right then and there. However, he is stopped by Lord Capulet, who says that he'll be damned if this saucy boy, which is one of my favorite Shakespearean insults, by the way, will ruin his party. (laughs) You saucy boy. Um, Tybalt vows to get Romeo. Romeo does not spot Rosaline at the party. Instead, he meets another girl, the two flirt, and they kiss. And this girl, of course, is Juliet. And they are completely smitten with one another. They also don't know each other's names when they hook up, but they're completely smitten with one another. But by the end of Act One, they find out and both they find out their names, and they both realize that there's going to be a problem because I'm in love with the person who's my parents want me to hate. The party breaks up. Mercutio, who's been giving Romeo a hard time all night, is probably completely sloshed at this point anyway. And he continues to loudly harass Romeo about Rosaline, mainly talking about her fine foot, her quivering thigh, and the domains that there adjacent lie. Mercutio is really good for a dirty joke. Uh, Romeo, hiding in the bushes by the Capulet's mansion, says that Mercutio jests at scars that have never felt a wound and waits until Mercutio and the rest of the guys give up and just go home. And then, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. And so begins the famous balcony scene where Juliet walks out and says, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And I explain that wherefore means why. So she's not asking where he is. She's asking, wondering, and why of all the families in the world he has to be a Montague. Because... The kid, and even then, they when I do that on the quiz, they all think where is Romeo. It's like no, it's why. Why are you a why are you Montague? Why are you a Montague? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Anyway, having heard enough, he says that he'll stop being Romeo if he can be with her. She gets startled, wonder what the hell he's doing there, and uh, the two of them they talk and they profess their love for another, and then they decide to get married. The next day, after meeting a couple of hours prior. Yeah, I know. The next day, Romeo visits his priest and confident Friar Lawrence, who is also a botanist, and tells him all about Juliet. Friar Lawrence agrees to marry the two of them because he's pretty sure it can be good to end the feud between the Montagues and the Capulets. Although he does warn Romeo to take things slowly which is something Romeo never, ever seems to do. Back on the streets, Juliet's nurse shows up to find Romeo and deliver news to him that Juliet will meet him to get married and does deliver that news, but only after Mercutio harasses the heck out of her. Then later that day, Romeo and Juliet go to Friar Lawrence and they are married. And that's the end of Act 2. In Act 3, Scene 1, we open in the exact way as Act 1, Scene 1. 
It's another hot day in Verona. And I should say that this play, t- play takes place in the summer because at one point in Act One, they're discussing Juliet's birthday and it puts it like around the end of July, like July 31st or something. So Mercutio and Benvolio are walking the hot sun on the streets of Verona and Benvolio says they should head back inside. He's got a bad feeling about the day. You know, like a fight's going to break out. And Tybalt shows up. Romeo shows up. And Tybalt challenges Romeo. But Romeo, who's now full of love for Juliet, says that he loves Tybalt. And remember, Tybalt's Juliet's cousin. So Romeo's like, I'm not going to fight you. But eventually Mercutio takes on Tybalt. And Tybalt stabs Mercutio, mortally wounding him. And Mercutio declares a plague on both your houses. And then tells his friends that they look for him tomorrow. They shall find him a grave man. So the, the jokester dies with a pun. Romeo, full of anger, fights Tybalt and kills him. Realizing what he's done, he yells, I am fortune's fool, and flees the scene. The prince eventually shows up, and after learning about what happened, decides not to kill Romeo by execution, but exile him. Juliet learns about the death of Tybalt and Romeo's banishment. She mourns loudly. We know it is more for Romeo than Tybalt, but since Tybalt is her cousin, she can just kind of you know, everybody just assumes it's Tybalt, so she can she can mourn. The nurse comforts her by telling her that Romeo being banished is way better than him being put to death. Not only that, she knows where Romeo has run off to, and she'll go get him so they can be together on their wedding night. And by the way, Romeo is hiding at Friar Lawrence's, and that's where the friar is telling him that he is banished, and he gets all upset about it, because of course he does. And then the nurse shows up to bring him to Juliet. So the two of them do it. In the morning, Romeo reluctantly leaves Juliet's bedroom and heads off to Mantua, where he's going to be in exile. Meanwhile, Juliet's father talks to Paris again, and he says that not only will he agree to the marriage of Juliet and Paris, he'll get them married right away. After all, such a celebration will certainly lift the spirits of the Capulet household after Tybalt's untimely demise. The problem is, well, we know she's married to Romeo. And we know she has no interest in Paris. And so when she finds out that she's going to be forced to marry Paris, we know what she's going to do, which is, well, she loses it. And she insists that it's not going to happen. Everyone, her mother, her father, even the nurse, who obviously knows about Romeo, tries to convince her otherwise. But it doesn't work. And she becomes more obstinate about it. Finally, her father says, if you don't do this, I'm kicking you out. And Juliet turns to her mother for help. Her mother's basically like, don't look at me. And Juliet is alone. So what does she do? She conspires with Friar Lawrence to fake her death. The guy not only being a priest but a botanist concocts a sleeping potion that will put her out for a few days. That will give everyone enough time to find her dead, mourn her, and put her in the family mausoleum. Meanwhile, he'll get a message to Romeo over Mantua about their plan. He'll set up a rendezvous and they can live happily ever after. And love conquers all. Well, maybe in some other version. This is the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet here. So she drinks the poison. There's a lot of sadness. They hold the funeral. Friar John is given the message. And in one of the best examples of you had one job is unable to deliver it. Now, truth be told, he was quarantined somewhere due to an outbreak of plague and he couldn't deliver. But still, you had one job. 
Balthazar, who's Romeo's servant, sees Juliet's funeral. So he heads to Mantua, where he tells Romeo that Juliet's dead. Romeo shouts, I defy you stars, and heads back to Verona. On the way, he stops an apothecary and buys poison, which he will use to kill himself so he can be at Juliet's side in death. Friar Lawrence discovers that Friar John, who had one job, didn't deliver the message, and he heads to the Capulet Mausoleum because it's just about time for Juliet to wake up. Romeo arrives first, though, and sees Juliet. Then he comes across Paris, who thinks that Romeo is there to desecrate Tybalt's grave. So they fight. Romeo kills Paris, and with his dying words, Paris asks to be placed near Juliet, to whom he was betrothed. A compassionate Romeo does so. It is here where Romeo looks upon the love of his life and says, O my love, my wife, death that hath sucked the honey of thy breath hath had no power yet upon thy beauty. Thou art not conquered. Beauty's ensign yet is crimson in thy lips and in thy cheeks, and death's pale flag is not advanced there. And this is where I rage quit the play, because she's waking up and he's too stupid to realize that or take a freaking pulse. Anyway, Romeo drinks the poison and dies. Meanwhile, Paris's page has gone and gotten the night watchman. Balthazar has gone and gotten Friar Lawrence. Juliet wakes up. She finds Romeo dead. Friar Lawrence tries to get her to leave the tomb and go with him. She'll like put her in a convent or something. And she refuses. Just then, the night watchman arrives. Friar Lawrence ends up leaving, but Juliet stays behind in the tomb. She tries to drink the poison um, that Romeo had. There's nothing in the bottle. She tries to kiss it off his lips. She can't get anything. But she does find his dagger and stabs herself. When their bodies are discovered, Friar Lawrence explains everything to the prince, and then the parents are summoned. We find out that Romeo's mother has died from grief of the exile of her son, and the two warring families begin to mend fences. They end their feud, and each one decides to build a statue in honor of the other's child. Then the prince closes the play by saying, a glooming peace this morning with it brings. The sun for sorrow will not show its, his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. So that is the magnificent and lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, or whatever the the, the most excellent and lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. And before we begin our discussion, did you like it? It's interesting because listening to you do that whole synopsis, it's really not clear whether you like it or not. It's because <laughs> I'm a smartass about it. <laughs> My goodness, sir. Uh, you know, it's not the best Shakespeare play, I don't think, even though it is perhaps the most renowned. Mm-hmm. It is certainly problematic, but it is hella entertaining, honestly. Um, I do, I have frustrations. I don't know that I necessarily share the same frustrations that you do. Um, So I'll I'll say yes. Yes, but with a critical eye. I'm kind of in the same way. I used to really not like this play. I didn't like it in high school. Um, and when it was like, you know, we're, we're going to teach it. And I'm like, Oh God, I have to do this. And over the years of teaching it, um, and I taught it my first year 
which was 18 years ago. And then in the last six, um, I've gained an appreciation for it. It's still not my favorite um, among either of, of Shakespeare's tragedies or Shakespeare's plays overall. Uh, but there are things that I really appreciate about the way it's written. And you're right. It is very entertaining. Um, and, uh, and there are certain characters who like kind of make the whole thing for me. I'm, I'm a, I really love the character of Mercutio. Um, and, uh, and you know, my, my, my declaration that Romeo, um, is the whiniest character in all of Western literature, I think is, you know, kind of an objective fact, but, um, but no, I, I do, I do not, I don't hate it. I don't, it's not my favorite, but I do, I did enjoy it. Um, and I've had a little bit more of enjoyment out of it over the last few years because I've had to get to know it so much, you know? So, um, so yeah, so I'm kind of at a, eh, like a six or a seven out of 10, maybe, right? Okay. Out of six out of seven out of 10 whiny Italian boys. So, but I mean, so this is a good question because this is one of those things. This discussion was actually harder for me to prep than I realized. Um, because the play is, first of all, the play is like, it's all plot, right? I mean, there's character stuff in here and there's witty jokes and stuff like this, but there's a, it's very sequential in terms of its events and, you know, one thing leads to another, which is what plot is. But, um, you know, I, I was looking at some of the questions that I ask for, you know, my students and stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow, I spend a lot. I end up spending a lot of time on like comprehension and recap and stuff. So um, getting into the thematic things, there's there's some stuff in here. But I'm like, I guess my first question is, you know, this is well-worn territory for a lot of people. What is the appeal of this play and why has it endured so much? I think it's the romance is at the heart of it. And, it, you know, some people are judgmental, I think, towards romances. <laughs> <laughs> but because it's under the guise of Shakespeare, they're like, well, it's an academic romance. Mm. And I think it's it gives people an idea of. <laughs> like this fantastically wonderful first love potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're like rooting for these characters and all these things are going wrong that you don't want to go wrong. And in the end it's, it's this tragic story. So I think it's something I think of all the Shakespeare's, it might be the most engaging and it might be the most accessible. And I mean engaging as in um, like things are moving very, very quickly. Yeah. Like this really seems to happen within the span of a week, to be it, honest. No, the whole play takes place roughly within the span of a week, maybe a little longer. Yeah. It depends on how long Romeo has been exiled in Mantua. But the time between him meeting Juliet and him being exiled to Mantua is like 24 hours or 48 hours. Yeah. yeah. So uh, very quick, the actions, you know, very quick because we think about, you know, some of these other plays that we visited mm-hmm. and, and it, it could go on for years depending on what's happening. And those things deal with wars and politics. Here we have two teenagers. And so there's a, relay, a relatability factor there as well. Two teen- teenagers, their parents don't want to get them together. Yes, of course, we have this feud going on if, you know, if you pull it back. Young love and then, well, some crazy 
crazy hijinks is happening. And yeah, I think it's just very relatable. I think it's engaging. And I think also the language is a bit easier than potentially other Shakespeare's as well. Like mm-hmm. I could read this and it felt like I was reading it more quickly than I w- would like Macbeth or Hamlet, mm. just to like throw out two of them. Yeah, Macbeth only reads so quickly because it's like his shortest tragedy. But you're mm-hmm. right. This does. This has some. The, this has some pop to it too. It, it, I mean, there there are a couple of places where it slows down a little bit, especially when you're dealing with like Friar Lawrence and some of that. I'm sure there's a little bit of fat that can be trimmed, but um, but yeah, it it really does. Um, it, it really is engaging and accessible and. It translates well to more modern contexts, too. Uh, we're going to get to add an aspect of that, but something I didn't mention in the synopsis that I should have is that this is this was adapted into a, one of the most famous musicals of all time, which was West Side Story. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, you instead of the Montagues and the Capulets, you have the Sharks and the Jets. And so there's that aspect to it. Um, and you're right. We we love ourselves some young love, and we love ourselves some some kind of that passionate passionate love that is really um, <laughs> teenagers excel at. In fact, um, I, I pasted this into our document because I was just on Twitter today, and Claire Willett, uh, a, a Twitter username Claire Willett, was talking about the Little Mermaid. Um, movie or trailer or whatever, and she says, much like Romeo and Juliet, the Little Mermaid can o- only can make sense if you can truly see the characters as chaotic high school sophomores who just discovered what being horny feels like and have entirely <laughs> lost their minds. Jeez. And I do remember years ago, um, a guy that I was doing uh, licensure classes with, and he ended up teaching English in another high school, the division where we where we were working. Uh, Stuart Chapin, who is no longer with us, said that, you know, you just got to explain to these kids who are taking your class that Romeo and Juliet are two hormonal, horny teenagers. And it's just like, yeah, like I, I see the. Uh, you know, the the way that the drama that happens around, you know, kids at 15, 16 kind of falling in love with each other and stuff. And then like, you know, um, you go to a prom, there's at least like one traumatic breakup going on in a, in a over to the side and stuff like that. And like all of that raging, I, I can see why that why that endures. I always find it interesting that people hold this up, though, as like one of the greatest love stories of all time when it's like, did you read the last three acts of the play? You know, like, yeah, they die. <laughs> and they're barely together. Yeah, they are barely together. And not only that, you know, within the first 14 lines of the play that they die, like, you know, you yeah. know, going in. But that is something I've always liked about the play. Is that acts one and two are a comedy and a complete comedy. If you go by what my professor in college said, which is Shakespeare's comedies end in weddings and his tragedies end in funerals. And they meet one another and they get married by the end of act two. And by having act three, scene one be staged exactly like act one, scene one, he resets the play and the last three acts are a tragedy. And 
I didn't catch that until a couple of years ago. And that's where I started to have more of an appreciation of the play. Cause I was like, man, that is brilliant. Um, because the, 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 the fight at the beginning is silly until Tybalt gets involved. And then Tybalt gets involved. It gets a little more serious. And then, you know, the prince, you know, et cetera. But like the, the fight at the, um, the, the mood of act three, scene one is, is heavier right when it begins before Tybalt jumps in and, and starts, you, you know, something bad is going to go down. And, and Benvolio and uh, Mercutio even, uh, even mention that in their conversation. It's just, I got a bad feeling about this. So, I really have oh, I've I've come to appreciate that aspect of it. Getting it to appeal to teenagers though is um is tough. <laughs> and one of the things that they uh they all some of them always get stuck on is the ages of the characters. Especially age um the age of Juliet because I think we're supposed to assume that Romeo is a couple of years older than Juliet. Uh, or at least that's what I've always been told that he might be 15 or 16, but even if he's 14 and she's 13, how do we draw their attention away from that to focus on the material? Cause I've had students get completely hung up on that and they can't seem to actually pay attention to anything. So how, what, what's your idea? Like, you know, it's icky. I don't want to read this because it's icky. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I guess I just immediately go to Mother, um, to uh, Mary, Mother of God, mm-hmm. who was also 13 when all of that was going on. Um, I feel like it's, it's just a different time period. Um, I don't know how to draw them away from a fixation mm-hmm. just by saying, you know, it's a, it's a different time. Um, I mean... Uh, the only connection would be I don't, I don't even know if that's the best connection though because I think about war mm-hmm. and that a lot of these characters and even you know I would say our young men in you know Vietnam and things yeah. like that were going to war, world war the world wars and things like and were they just have to grow up so quickly and I think that's just the nature of the play i don't know i i think it adds a dimension to it though um because they are way more well romeo you know this will be a bit dubious in what i'm about to say but they speak and act more mature than they are like their ages Mm -hmm. tell us they are and i think it, it it gives an interesting dimension in that all of this stuff is going on and it makes them really grow up quickly with with everything that's happening around them in the setting. Not only with like the politics of the feud, but uh, falling in love and making these decisions that are going to have long ripples in, you know, the relationships with other people as well as the state of Verona. So even though on paper they're 13, 14, or 16, mm-hmm. um, in actuality, I think they are much older just because the situations make them so. Um, I, I don't know how to draw their attention away from that. I mean, except for empathy, because really... Could we not say that these kids, the kids that you're teaching, 
would be doing the same thing. I mean, even if they are not, which we do know that student, I mean, I'm not saying everyone, this is like a blanket statement, but I'm not saying everyone, children, let's say, are engaging in sexual behaviors younger and younger, Mm -hmm. Um, whether that's actual intercourse or engaging with sexual media, things like that. So there's a connection there. I don't know how you would be able to bridge that sort of thing without getting fired, but they're honestly, they are Romeo and Juliet's. They just aren't um, willing, I think, to see that. Yeah, and and I think that's part of it. I think you put that really, really well. Because often I just say, "Hey, it was 400 years ago, and and people got married that way," you know. And and I even do point out that there is a line. That line that Lady Capulet has, she says, when I was her age, I was married and had a kid. And they're all like, yeah, I said, well, you know, it was this this was the time I said. But and then I point out that she's kind of trying to force the custom on her and she doesn't want it. Julia doesn't want it. But I, I do I do sit down, you know, I, I, I do tell them kind of like, you know, um, and approach it uh, like like if you're adapting it for now, like let's let's put this movie in these times and you have, you know, and then you as a person meet somebody else who you fall like love at first sight. You see this person and you meet them and you, you hang out with them for a couple of hours and you kiss a little bit, you know, make out a little bit. And it's like, nothing else in the world matters. And, you know, and I, I do mention, um, but you then, but there's a reason that the two of you can't get together and it has nothing to do with the way you feel about each other. And then, you know, and then it's like, you know, what would get in the way? So like having engaging them in a discussion of like how you would put it, how you would just simply adapt this for translate this to the, to the current day does help a little bit because they, they don't always get the warring family thing, but they can, they understand the, they understand other complications. It's, um, and it could be, it's myriad things too, because it's everything from, um, you know, we talk about West side stories, the rival gangs thing, you know, they've, they don't, they know that gangs aren't necessarily the sharks and the jets dancing around and having knife fights, but they're certainly familiar with, you know, um, gang culture and, and stuff like that from what they've seen in the media or unfortunately in, in, uh, in real life. Um, they talk about, uh, you could talk about having, um, one of them be poor and one of them be rich. So go with that angle and, and, and get rid of the feuding families and, and, you know, somebody's preventing another one. Uh, you could bring, you could bring race, gender, sexuality into it too. And, and is there something, you know, adapted for that? And like, once they start to think of like, what would be the reasons that your parents don't want you to date somebody? Um, and it ha- you know, uh, they, they start, the wheels start to turn. So, uh, I'm not always successful at it. I always have one or two people who just will not give it up and they do that loudly. And after a while, I'm just kind of like very politely being like, well, would you just please, please shut up so that we can listen to the play? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think it, I think it can translate well into modern day, which is, I think what works. Um, and eventually you can kind of get them lost in the story, especially, especially when I see Romeo and his friends and they're joking around like teenage boys do. I mean, you taught middle school, right? So mm-hmm. you, 
when they're giving each other a hard time and joking around and being silly and stupid, like that's teenage boys, you know? And, you know, so when you start pointing that out, that it starts getting there. Um, was there anything that jumped out at you like this time um, in a new reading of the play as opposed to like the last time you read or saw it? To be honest, the maturity difference between Juliet and Romeo. Mm. I didn't realize I, I thought they were both immature in how they were dealing with things. Uh-huh. Feeling-wise, you know, jumping into things, not thinking things through, overly emotional reactions. But actually, that's mostly Romeo. (laughs) Juliet actually is pretty level-headed, and they often face the exact same situations, but the reactions between them, the reactions comparatively couldn't be more different, Um, which I... Well, I mean, that's another question, but I just wondered if Shakespeare was getting at some psychology mm. there. Um, but that that was probably the the biggest thing that I recognized, that Juliet had a pretty good head on her shoulders. And then I also noticed some contradictory character behavior, mm-hmm. which I think is another question I put down. So those are two things that I, I was considering as I was reading through it this time. Yeah, there, the contradictory character behavior is interesting. We'll get that to that in a moment. I agree with you there. I also always point out, and jokingly, and all the girls like nod their heads. I say, you know, girls mature faster than boys anyway. But she, yeah. she's more rational. I always like when he does this with his female characters, where he makes them the more rational of the pair. Because mm-hmm. in my mind, he's subverting the trope of the hysterical woman. You know, the overly emotional woman. And, you know, that, that sort of... You know, the the idea that the woman would be the 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 weaker, more emotional one and the man would be the more rational one. And, and he 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 flips that stereotype on his head. And I think he's doing it a little bit here. Um, I did seem to recognize a couple of pieces of maybe social criticism and or satire in this play that I that I really hadn't noticed. I think he is. I think he is either lightly jabbing or deliberately poking fun at nobility and customs of nobility, especially considering that the way that um, Juliet's parents are going through the very then traditional procedure for societal marriage, right? With arranging a marriage to Paris because it's politically and socially uh, helpful, to the families, right? It's the joining of two houses. There's a dowry probably, um, you know, and, and, and it's her, it's her duty as marriage. And when she talks to her mother about it, her mother, her mother is, it's interesting to see Juliet's relationship with her mother and with the nurse, because the nurse thinks of Juliet as a daughter and there's more affection toward the nurse than there is toward her mother who seems to be almost cold in terms of her or or pragmatic or just very businesslike in her dealing with it in the conversations we have. And she doesn't rush to defend her daughter when, when Lord Capulet flies off the handle is like, you know, you live under my rules, you get out of my house. Romeo's mother seems to genuinely care about him. 
Um, not that Juliet's mother didn't care about her daughter, but like there's a there's more of a concern about Romeo's state of being and state of emotion out of his mother, and I think that's why she dies of grief. I wonder is a is a euphemism for suicide. Um, and Juliet's mother lives. So I was, I've always I, I kind of noticed the dynamics between the kids and their parents a little bit more in this uh, in this reading. Um, do you think it's second child syndrome? The fact that they had another child, the Caplets had another child and that child died, that perhaps all the love was spent on that first child and this one, not as very much. Possible. It is very possible. Juliet being a daughter might be part of it too. Um, you know, sons were held in high esteem uh, and daughters were, not that daughters weren't cared for, but there's a there's a particular duty that a daughter has to her father and then to her husband that, you know, she becomes a she be she's she, good. Well, yeah, she's a commodity, you know, in that society. So and 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 the boys are not, and I think that's also part of it too. So, um. So I like to point. I, I I always point out the fact that Juliet is a lot more rational than Romeo. What do you think? I you know I jokingly say actually not jokingly. Romeo is the whiniest character in Western literature, and he's overly emotional and overly impulsive. So in my mind, his rush to rush to uh, die by suicide toward the end of the play tracks with how he has behaved the entire time. Um, what do you think of him? Is he is he even worth it <laughs> for Juliet? I imagine that he has a pretty, pretty face. Mm-hmm. And that's really as far as I can imagine where that's coming from. Uh, because they don't talk very much before uh, the pilgrims kissing their hands. Um, so it's not like he's super intelligent. I think, um, Mercutio has that really interesting monologue about dreams. And I feel like that's one of the more intelligent things that, uh, that is said. Romeo, it, yeah, it's all about, um, being a lover and all of his monologues are about that and, making metaphors and similes and things like that with celestial bodies. Um, I don't think that he's worth it. I mean, with as with, you know, some things, once you get past the pretty face, there's not much there. But there seems to be we, we can't really count for chemistry. Mm. So there must have been something there. Whether it's love or lust, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever known. I think this is something that I considered a lot during this particular read through. But yes, he is. He's. I would say he's emo for the first <laughs> act, um, and then things change. Like he, he is unfortunately uh, more like a stereotypical woman in how his emotions swing mm-hmm. and how he is hysterical. Uh, so of the two, he's very much the one leaning into those stereotypes. I would agree that his suicide tracks, if only because he fell on the floor after being banished and was whining about things and then was going to kill himself. And to compare, I mean, what is 
you know, also say that Juliet said that she was going to kill herself, but the situations when she was told that she was going to have to marry and all that and how she presents and it's like very calmly saying, I'm going to have to kill myself. So it's just so very different. So what do I think of him? Uh, I don't know. You know, when I was a teenager, maybe I would have been more enamored. I think we all potentially want someone who would dote on us. But I also, as I've gotten older, don't appreciate clingy human beings (laughs) so this might be this would probably be suffocating to me um but you know someone i I suppose telling me their feelings would be nice as long as it reciprocated but he's he's like very high high and intense 10 at all times he's too much is he the whiniest in western literature i mean that's that's a really bold statement to say i can't because you're dropping it now, I can't really think of anyone off the top of my head that would be comparative to that. And you're saying, you know, I even think of Holden. Holden to me is second. <laughs> yeah. And even he, I don't think he's this extreme mm. in what he, I mean, he is very moody, but yeah. Um, yeah, I can't come up with anyone else. Maybe I'll think about it as we continue in there. But I, I think that's I've fulfilled my obligation of answering <laughs> this particular question yeah. with what I think. He's probably a very pretty. Yeah, famous. no, I, I think that. But, you know, then again, Shakespeare is, is giving us love in a sense that um, goes against the, the things of society. Uh, the thing that I would that I that I get out of this, too, about him is that funny enough. Had he not been a Mont, she she's right when she's wondering about why do you have to be a Montague, because she knows deep down that had he not been a Montague, her parents would have no issue with this. You know, mm-hmm. he's from a rich family. He's from you know like all of the things that Paris has, Romeo has, except that Romeo is a Montague. So on that level, he's worth it. So it's Shakespeare's not doing what's I think more of a modern trope of the good girl and the bad boy. You know, um, like uh, Natalie wouldn't James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause, for instance, right? So something like that. Mm-hmm. So you, we're not, we're, we're Sandy and um, Danny Zuko in Greece. Like we're not going for that angle. Like Romeo is a, in fact, at one point, I think it's Lord Capulet when they're at the party and Tybalt spots him. Capulet, I think Capulet even says that Romeo's a nice kid. Like, you know, he's yeah. got. Um, the sins of the father are not being laid upon the son. I don't know if I, if I got that phrase correct, but but he he certainly gives Romeo a pass. So it would be it would have been interesting had they not thought that they had to conceal how they felt for one another. Like what? what yeah, what would have been what would have been it been like if if Juliet walked in to say. You know, um, I fell in love with a boy and it's Romeo and, and, you know, like what would have that conversation have been? But we don't get that. Um, now, I think it's also telling that he's very close with the friar. Yeah. And the friar, just to go on the friar, the friar is an interesting character because he's like he tries to be the voice of reason throughout the entire play. Even his justification for marrying the two has to do with the fact that maybe if these two get married, the families are going to have to reconcile, Um, which makes logical sense, even though we all know that that's not going to happen. 
And of course he plot wise, he, he is the one who like, when we meet him, we see him tending to herbs. And, um, that's, that's a good lesson in the sort of pay attention. This is going to be important later because when she, so, so the Shakespeare doesn't have one of those weird plot holes of like, where the heck was she able to get poisoned that quickly? It's like, Oh, she knew a guy. Um, and such. So he's, he, he is, I see him as a very kind person, a very smart person and rational person who unfortunately gets caught up in the fact that fate has something very different in store for these two kids. And he unfortunately does fate's bidding unknowingly. (laughs) Yeah. And I think some of his motives though did shift from altruism because at, at a certain point he's got to protect his, his own skin because suddenly we're, we're almost about to commit some bigamy Uh and that's going to (laughs) be, that's going to be on him, which is why I think he scampers away at the, in the whatever scene that was, because he was scared um, of someone appearing and him being caught, which in the end he, he did end up getting caught. Um, Yeah. But I, I think it just speaks to maybe Romeo's character that, um, you know, not everyone can be close with, you know, a person of the claw. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he can, he confides in him. You know, there's only four people mm-hmm. who, well, there, there's about, there's about five people who know about Romeo and Juliet's marriage. You have Romeo, Juliet, um, the mm-hmm. nurse, Friar Lawrence and Balthazar because, and the only reason Balthazar knows it because he's Romeo's servant and the plot demands it. Cause somebody, ha- the plot yeah, somebody has it. to spot Juliet's funeral, right? Somebody has to yeah. tell Romeo that Juliet's quote dead and it can't be Friar Lawrence because Friar Lawrence knows the truth behind it and the nurse would never contact Romeo. Right. So, so that that's what Balthazar does. Um, and there's a couple of, there's a bunch of other characters, but two that I just wanted to briefly talk about um, the closest the play has to a villain type of character, which is Tybalt, who is just a bully at least in my mind, I have much stronger language for kind of the type of guy he is. Um, but this is, I try not to curse in the show. Um, but, but he really is. He, he is just, he's always looking, he's that guy who's always looking for a fight. Um, you know, the, the, I always get the feeling that he's kind of dumb too, but he's a really good fighter. They talk about how he's a good swordsman and everything. Um, John Leguizamo in the Baz Luhrmann version of the film is so good as Tybalt. Uh, and Harold Perrineau, who was on Lost, um, by the way, is outstanding as Mercutio as well. And uh, those two in their fight scene, it's, uh, it's good. We'll get to Mercutio in a second. But am I wrong? Tybalt's just there to be just kind of an a-hole and, and uh, you know, where I'm, I'm glad he dies. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, I I feel like he serves more of a purpose, if only because I I think that he is one of the people that's really holding on to this family feud, yes. and I think it's symbolic of you know 
hereditary, like passing it down, passing down hate, not necessarily knowing what it is, because even in your synopsis, you cheekily said, like, who even remembers how this started, which might be true. But he's holding on to it. And he would be someone that would probably perpetuate that hatred as well. So I think, uh, yes, he is. He's a chode. (laughs) But (laughs) but he serves a purpose of carrying this anger and being one of the reasons why there is such concern from the prince Mm -hmm. why there is this unsettling feeling that goes along with the heat why some people hope maybe that this marriage would be okay or there's fear in the marriage as well uh and he's a good i guess he's a good foil for romeo as well as a foil potentially for capulet who um could i feel like take it or leave it take it or leave it the the feud Mm -hmm. um He's he's more reasonable about it. Um, yeah. Do you get the feeling that um, Capulet does the feud or participates in the feud or perpetuates the feud out of a sense of duty or family honor? Um, Probably. More than I mean, Tybalt, who to, hates to Montagues. Like, oh, like there's more of a yeah. passion in Tybalt for this. So I think he says, I hate yeah. Romeo's, I hate all Montague's or something like that. Whereas Capulet probably does too, but even he has his limits. So like at the party, he's like, you know, whatever, let it go. We'll get him, you'll get him some other time. And, and then he's yeah. like, no, he's like, look, and he, he pulls them aside. And I jokingly said, you saucy boy, but he's like in, if you watch him, if you watch Paul Sorvino do it in, in, in the 96 movie, he's like mad like outwardly mad eyes bulging at Tybalt. Um, and then when he's yelling at uh, uh, Juliet later, he's also mad and, and eyes bulging and stuff. Um, and, you know, this is an actor who played a mob boss in, in Goodfellas. So <laughs> it, it works. You don't want to see him angry? Yeah, it works. Yeah. No, I could see it. I could see, you know, my father would be turning in his grave if he knew that we were together with these Montagues. And it's so interesting because the names, it's so superficial and intangible. And, but it's, it seems realistic. Like if I were to suddenly say that, well, the Capulets have always been white and the Montagues have always been black. Then you're like, Oh, okay. Or, you know, the Capulets have always been, I don't know, Christian and the Montagues have always been Jewish. And you're like, oh, okay, I see where, mm-hmm. what's happening here. So it, even though it's just a name, I feel like there's definitely something that um, is representative of, of, of something bigger. So no one's willing to drop it because yeah. um, it's it's just always going to be there. And it just – I mean it's it's – just something that I think is present and present in our country as well. Just how is how is hate passed down and why mm. does it never change or grow away? That kind of thing. Well, and you notice how it, it what they talk about at the beginning of the of the play when Prince Aeschylus basically says, "Look, anybody who gets caught fighting again is going to be put to death." Is he says that you know we it's it, it's implied that it has recently started to flare up again. And that maybe there are periods where, yeah, these two families feud with one another, but the violence between them is dormant, you know, and but now there's just this renewed passion. And I think that's actually in the prologue. It says, um, 
from ancient grudge break to new mutinies. The, I guess the implication is that because of people like Tybalt, there's it's it's more it's heated up recently. And he says there's been three brawls in the last couple of weeks. I'm done with this. And next part, so so um, so yeah, Capulet's kind of that old sort of like you know I'm keeping this alive because this is what we've always done. But at the same time, like yeah. Um, now Tybalt, um, we'll get Tybalt. I think is a factor when we'll talk about the character change stuff in a minute. But I think Tybalt's a major factor in that, especially his death, because his death has a massive effect on the Capulet household. Um, they are they are in full mourning. I think he was a favorite cousin of them. Um, and a favorite nephew, uh, because I think when one thing one of my students pointed out in that there's a scene in Act One, uh, I think it's like Act One, Scene Two, or Act One, Scene Three, where uh, the page who is sent to deliver the invitations to everybody going to the party comes across Romeo and Benvolio and says, I can't read this list of people. Can you read this to me? And that's how Romeo and Benvolio find out about the party. But Rosaline's going to be there, but somebody pointed out that Rosaline's a Capulet. And it was something mm-hmm. I never noticed before because all I was like, oh, it's just because she's a throwaway character who never shows up. She's a plot device, right? But somebody's like, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I had never thought of it that way. And maybe Romeo either doesn't know or doesn't care, you know? Which also tracks for Romeo. He doesn't really care about, yeah. the, you know, um, and he only raises his sword after Tybalt kills Mercutio, his best friend. Mercutio is one of probably my favorite character in the play. Um, he is the fool, the classic Shakespearean fool, because he, he is pointing. He is constantly pointing out how stupid Romeo was being. But he has, like you said, he adds some intellectual uh, prowess to this play. He, he, his, his lines are really juicy, and he's got that whole the Queen Mab speech, as uh, mm-hmm. which is about dreams and the fairy dreams, and, and just just it's a ramble, but it's hard to decipher too. The kids, the kids have a hard time with it. Um, I, I love the character. I love how silly he is around the nurse and gives her a hard time. His use of puns. Um, he's not letting up because I think he symbolizes and personifies the comedy of it all. And as I point out to my or my students, pick up pretty quickly that in Act 3, Scene 1, Tybalt kills comedy. And the play from then on is a tragedy. So... In that way, I find it almost metatextual, but maybe I'm just being too English teachery about it. What do you think? Uh, metatextual about the what? Fact Sorry, that when one Tybalt more time. kills Mercutio, he's literally killing all the comedy in the play. Oh, interesting. All right, just being an English teacher here. Um, the only uh, let me think about that. The only person I would say who is also comedic is yes. the nurse. So that would be my only dissension from your point, but I have to think about what she does after that. Um, Mourns Tybalt and tries to convince Juliet to marry Paris. But Juliet and Romeo, did they sleep together after the death of Tybalt? Yes. 
because okay so there's still or that's kind of how it's played that in the 60s version that scene is played very comedically mm. um so that's hard to also separate interpretations yeah. um maybe 90 percent. i agree okay. with you i think the nurse i think with stuff that she says because she has a lot of double entendres she would be like the female version of Mercutio. Mm-hmm. so i think she carries some lightness um on that side but it's not received in the same way because Juliet feels betrayed by the yes. nurse at, at, at a certain point. And so even though the nurse might be saying humorous things, they're going to fall on deaf ears. And also, oh, I do disagree with you. <laughs> also, uh, I'm sorry. Now that I'm thinking. Yeah, I got to rewrite my thing. lesson plans. I think, no, I think you have made like a really strong point. Uh, I just don't think I could say all, but I think a hefty mm. amount because there's that scene with which is a weird scene with the musicians and Peter question mark who pops up like twice yeah. is doing this weird conversation between the musicians and like what they're worth and stuff and that's like a comedic thing as yeah that's well. a little bit of comic relief I think as they're gonna try to prepare for I'm trying to remember where it is but you're right Peter is like the nurse's assistant. Essentially, because he, he the other time he pops up is when she's going to deliver the news um, to Mercu- to Romeo about meeting Juliet to get married. And, you know, Peter's with her. She's like, Peter, Peter, you know, so um, so perhaps revision. <laughs> there is something symbolic in Mercutio's death and that Shakespeare is telling us that the play is now going to become the tragedy that it is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And in a way he is not all the comedy in the play, but he is symbolic of the comedy in the play in some, in some sense. So covering my ass. All right. So (laughs) is he in love with Romeo? (laughs) Do we yeah, ship? Do we ship? I, I, I ship Mercutio and Romeo. Do you, you ship, ship them? them? I don't. So this has been something that you and I talked on uh, in person last yeah. time we were yeah. together, because I had read a book called We Were Villains, which I highly recommend, and in that there is a subtext. Because it's about this troupe in college, and they uh, do several Shakespeare productions throughout the year. And so at one point, these two uh, are Romeo Mercutio, and, like, something's going on. And so you're like, oh, my gosh, is there actual subtext? So I've been, like, reading this with the thought that, oh, maybe there is something going on. I think he may have some attraction towards Romeo, especially, I think... I think you might see it a lot when Romeo's trying to hide um, after the party, yeah, I think. Uh, and Mercutio's like yeah. yelling at him and stuff like that. But I I don't ship them. I do think that Mercutio is queer-leaning. Honestly, I think Peter is also mm. gay. Um, but, and I guess that's a terrible stereotype because of like a nurse being gay. But just like that his presence and just a short amount. I'm like, I think that character is gay. I think Mercutio is queer leaning, but I think that Mercutio is with Benvolio. And 
multi so first of all I'll, I'll i will i guess i'll collapse these two questions because of Marco sure. but i'd love to hear the fact that you ship them um i'd love to hear your your thoughts of why um, first of all, Mercutio is very penis focused. I was flipping through trying to find any number of sections where he's talking about, like, he talks about penetration. He talks about, like, this thing. He, he goes on, I think it might be right before the fight, actually, with, uh, Tybalt. Uh, so many, like, all of the penis jokes, I would say, with the exception of a couple that the nurse says, of, like, you're going to be laid out on your back. They're, they're all coming from Mercutio. Um, number two, uh, they're always together. Mercutio and Benvolio, like, appear together. Um, yes, there's, like, that time that Benvolio is there by himself and things like that. But they just always seem to be together. On the invitation, suspiciously, it says, now, it could literally be this, but it suspiciously says, Mercutio and, was it Brother Valentine or Valentine? Now, it could be his brother mm-hmm. Valentine, or it could be like a little um, sly, like they're going to put that, but it's actually like Valentine, mm-hmm. like Valentine is oh. in love and he's bringing his like plus one. Who knows? And finally, now this is up for debate because the medlar that he talks about, apparently it, uh, well, this book, okay, I saw something because I like to also read like synopses and analyses on Shakespeare after I read the scene. Described it as looking like female genitalia, but I saw that it actually looks like a butthole. <laughs> and also, you're supposed to eat it when it is brown. Okay, he's talking about this medlar. Um, and I even see in my book, it says medlar, a fruit also called open arse. Uh, yes. So the fact that he's talking about all of these things leads me to believe that he is queer. He could be bisexual. Who knows? So I'll just yeah. say queer. And I personally ship him with Benvolio. But because we've just decided and established that Romeo has a pretty, pretty face, I'm sure that Mercutio probably is physically attracted to him. Uh, you, you know, you're you are convincing me that that. <laughs> no, you hold but on. I, just, to I your think ship. there's a little bit of jealousy behind his giving Romeo a hard time at the beginning of Act Two, and Romeo's hiding in the bushes, and he's he's saying some really vulgar stuff about Rosaline, right? Oh, you know, yeah. and it's, and I think he's doing it to get under his skin because on one hand, that is how the dynamic between these guys is. But at the same time, I think he is a little bit, um, I think he is a little bit jealous and there, there's an attraction, but I, I, I like that idea of him and Benvolio. Now it makes sense that Benvolio might be seen by himself at times because Benvolio is Romeo's cousin and a very, yeah. a very close cousin in the family. So like, you know, uh, like a, like a cousin who's best friends and, and I, I'm from a big family, uh, extended family. And so, you know, I grew up around a lot of cousins, you know, and I have, cousins who are uh, who I was very close to my youth and I have cousins who are very close to each other now they're almost like best friends or almost siblings so the idea that Romeo and, and Benvolio would be that close um, and then with like likewise with Romeo's parents at the beginning is like have you seen Romeo can you convince him you know etc they kind of give some exposition as to what Romeo has been like uh, Benvolio being alone makes total sense but yeah you're right you 
you never see Mercutio without Benvolio. Mm-hmm. And like, and even, even when Romeo, you know, um, it's not there and stuff. So they, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. And he is, he is definitely at times flamboyant too, in his performance. Yeah. yeah. This is a, um, and, and honestly, like the way he's played in, in, in the, um, I, I can't remember how he's played in the 60 version, the 96 version. He, he does, he goes full drag at the party, you know, and, uh, that's his costume, which is bold for the nineties. It is, but it's also very, um, Though it makes sense. It's funny that Claire Danes is also in the film because, you know, my so-called wife yeah. having um, a gay yes. best friend who is also a person of color. And then, yeah, they um, groundbreaking. Mercutio was was black mm-hmm. um, in that adaptation. Yeah. Too. And, yeah. and the scene where he it's I get I get a decent amount of that subtext from that scene, especially in his death scene where. The way they have him look at Romeo, there's like Lerman's trying to establish some sort of tension between the two of them or the tension off of Mercutio toward Romeo or something that there might be something unrequited. But that idea of Mercutio and Benvolio. But yes, the the I would agree with you that Mercutio is a queer character. Um, We don't see enough of him to know where in the spectrum he lies right <laughs> so mm-hmm. so so using that kind of catch-all so um and shakespeare liked to play with that too right he he had he liked to he liked to do characters they playing with things like gender um because we've got a number of you know gender swap etc type of of plays that he's done so the idea that he would play with sexuality in whatever way he could get away with, right? Because this is Elizabethan, you know, this is 400 years ago. This is not, you know, now. Um, yeah, that's it's kind of bold there. So, yeah. And, sorry, I'm looking at it. So, yeah, so we have these characters. And um, the scene in Act 4... I think it's act four where they decide, okay, Paris is going to get married to Juliet. We're going to allow this to happen. And it seems that like when we see them in act one, the nurse is very protective in some way or another against for Juliet, right? You know, she's, she's very much on Juliet's side, especially through the whole romance with Romeo. Juliet's mother does not seem to change character. You know, she's very focused on the duty of it all. And she's, you know, when her husband flies off the handle, she's like, don't look at me, you know, and, and because Juliet's mm-hmm. mom, she's like, no, you know, so I, that's one thing that doesn't change. But Capulet goes from Capulet literally tells Paris, I approve of the idea of you marrying her, but it's not up to me. It's up to my daughter. Right. So like. You can come to ask my for my daughter's hand in marriage, which was the custom at the time, and I will give that to you, but the decision is ultimately hers. And he he literally says that when he meets him the first time, but the second time around, he's like, yep, let's go get married. And um, I've always taken the drastic shift for him is grief over Tybalt, that he says, 
yes, we'll do this because it'll make everybody happy. And we need to get happy because we're mourning and maybe this will put some brightness into it. And we can, can help us move on because we have this new beautiful couple together and we can celebrate them in the wake of, of what had happened. Am I off the mark there by saying that might be the motivation for his complete switch as far as how he thinks his daughter should be married? Yeah, this is honestly one of the 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 moments that just has me flummoxed because he goes from this endearing, compassionate, caring lord slash father who is trying to prevent any sort of fights, mm-hmm. who wants his for a suitor to wait three years, wasn't it? Three years yeah, thereabouts. for his daughter to yeah. get married, and it needs to be her consent to all of a sudden, <laughs> you will do this, you will obey, or you will be out on your yeah. ear. And, uh, and it just seems such an extreme switch. Yes, you can explain it, but I feel like there's – like if this were to happen in a comic book, we'd be like, that's bad writing. Yeah. Where does this characterization come from? And yes, I think you can explain it, but even that is like iffy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm hearing you and I understand what you're saying, Tom, but let's cheer people up. But at the same time, he's also saying – Let's do it Wednesday. No, no, Wednesday's too soon for the morning period. Let's do it yeah, Thursday. And- so, like, he even recognizes that this is really inappropriate. And then just to switch on his daughter, I'm like, who is this person? Why has this happened? And I kind of throw that on Shakespeare. Yeah, because he, the, the, I because I was trying to no prize it essentially, right? Like, I'm trying to what in story is the rationale? But even then, I yes, think that's I yes. think. I, I don't think that holds as much water as it needs to. And Shakespeare needed this to happen so that he could get to the plot at the end. Right? Like, yeah. what? Because otherwise, how, why would, like, otherwise, how do you have the tragedy happen? You know? Um, yeah. Because if there's nothing forcing her to do anything drastic to go be with Romeo. So let's have her and, and let's have her marry Paris because everybody's going to remember that Paris was at the beginning of the play wanting to marry her. So at least we've had, I, there's something I can call, I can, there's something I'm, I, I'm not pulling this out of complete thin air. There was something at the beginning of the play that was already there. So when people are like, Oh, the pair marriage to Paris, Okay, yeah, I remember that. So there's a logical point. It's like, you know, not something that's completely right. out of left field, but you're right. The character change there, it's like, why Why would you or why wouldn't you establish that this is a couple of months later or something, right? Like if you're saying, you know, these two months have passed and – it, it's been rough and blah, blah, blah. And Paris comes to see this and, you know, and then, and then we have this thing where he's like, you know, yes, um, you know, we, we've been in sadness long enough. I think that not enough time has passed, you know, for, I would agree. Yeah. And what's going on with Paris? What wouldn't Paris also know that this is socially unacceptable? Yeah, I, I don't, 
And we don't get enough of his character. The only thing we get out of his character is that he seems to genuinely like Juliet and he seems like he's a pretty upstanding person. He, he really doesn't have much of a character. Um, he's there to t- try to defend the honor of the Capulets and then die. But even then in movie adaptations, they, they take that part out. Um, he, he mm. does it in, in, um, in, he, I don't think his, I don't think he dies in either of the movie versions I mentioned. I know he does not die in the, in the Leo DiCaprio, uh, version. And I want to say in the 68 version, they, they leave that scene out entirely because it's really not necessary that he dies, you know? No, and I think it probably muddies the the two lovers because yeah. all of a sudden there's a third body yeah. in there, um, and you want to keep it as pure as possible. Yeah. So that's kind of one of the. It, it, actually, that's some of the fat you could have trimmed. You know, ha, have have if you're going to insist that it's going to be marriage to Paris because I don't know. Do you think that Shakespeare is saying something about like? the customs of nobility and, and the noble society and that they marry marriage is a transaction rather than falling in love. And this is why he keeps Paris in there so long. Yeah, I absolutely. I, I think it's not, um, I think his name count though. It's often it's said mm. County in the in the actual play is constantly brought up and so it's not just it's definitely not a love match even though capulet was originally sort of allowing that option to be present given giving juliet the chance to consent to it um that yeah that status is and isn't paris related to the prince question mark Okay. Yeah. So that's definitely it in everyone's mind. The fact that they're scrambling around and up the entire night getting all the, these marriage preparations and everything, because everything was accelerated anyways, back to Wednesday when it wasn't yeah. supposed to be. I would say so, yes. And just like, yeah, the extravagance um, that comes with it and ignoring everything else. Yeah, I think there is probably a critique. Is did we decide is uh, Shakespeare a wealthy? Is this one of those things that's debated whether he, what, of what class he was? At one point in his career, he amassed quite a bit of wealth because of his okay. success on this with the stage. But I think okay. he was already uh, had one. You know, I've watched biographies in him, and he was. He didn't come from a poor family. I don't know if middle class would put it there, but I don't oh. know. You know, so I'm unfortunately I don't remember. <laughs> so so yeah. please somebody write it but, and tell us yeah. clarify that for us. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, marriage is a transaction. Uh, the mm-hmm. purpose of the daughters to carry on the family mm-hmm. name. And to get a wealthy, I mean, this is true of like for a very long time, you know, to have a good match and then for the husband to carry on that name via birth. So, I mean, and we had that, unfortunately, I will say just back to that other point. I was it. Oh, no. About the the character switch. I would have liked if this was his true character, I would have liked to have seen threads of that before. Mm -hmm. Like him losing his temper or something. But because it, it's just like 
again, the sweet person in the first part, and then now suddenly not. Now, it could go to your explanation that this is literally two different plays. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's shifting to show that because the nurse also did a 180 and she's talking like Juliet didn't get married under yeah. God um, in everything. So that's also quizzical. So maybe, maybe uh, that that could be an explanation. But I, I feel like it honestly is poor storytelling and characterization because he to go from my daughter needs to be three years older and you need to get her consent first to like suddenly calling her like a hussy or a heart. Like, isn't there a comparison to that in his, uh, one of his wrathful so, speeches? Yeah. That's just insane. Yeah. So. And the only way I could see the, a hint of the anger that he has is the way he takes down Tybalt in the party sure. in act one, but you've got to play it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And the only explanation I can think of the party is something along the lines of, well, we had such a good time at the other party. Let's throw another one and it'll be a joyous occasion and make everybody forget. But even that is thin, right? It's just, it, I think you're right. It is, it is, it, it is, it goes down to some bad storytelling and maybe Shakespeare was trying something or maybe there was a convention of the time that we just don't know. Um, but overall, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily work here. But the plot does go along. And the other thing that kind of the plot demands is um, the fact that Romeo and Juliet's tragedy ends up being partially caused by miscommunication or missed. You know, it, it's this whole idea that they are star-crossed lovers. And, you know, I always ask students to interpret what they think that means. Um, and, you know, uh, so I have to, kind of two questions here. One, um, what do you make of that phrase? You know, and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, and, and the luck that they have. And then the whole thing about miscommunication. Why is this such a trope in Shakespeare's plays? Aside from the fact that sometimes it's good for comedy. Miscommunication. Yeah. Like um, the whole thing with the or, or missed yes. or missed communication in this case, the whole thing, the Friar John not getting the letter there. You had one job, you know, as I was joking and yeah. stuff like that. Like, you know, uh, but but with the Starcross lovers thing, like what do you what do you think that that phrase has come to mean um, throughout this play? As a fan of Virgil's Aeneid, I, I would say it's all mm-hmm. fate-based, to be sure. Um, and just that we, we, however much we want to believe that there's free will, uh, it'll only take us so far, and, and destiny and fate cannot be overturned. Which, of course, you know, the even the uh, Greek and Roman pantheon, they could also, they were perilous when it came to fate. So I I would go in that way. Uh, what it literally means, which is interesting, star-crossed yeah. lovers. Um, yeah. Gosh, yeah, like thieves passing. It's just like these two that are passing, but they're never, they intersect, but they can never run mm. parallel, which is true because there are these points, I guess, really just two points, maybe three, three, like the party, 
the uh, balcony scene and then I guess their their sex mm-hmm. scene, um, their honeymoon question Wedding mark, night. that, you know, those are the points. And then everything else are at odds yeah. with one another because they can't they can't catch up. So they're just not on the right plane, which I, I suppose, you know, two shooting stars would not be going in parallel to each other. That's as far as I can get with that one. As for miscommunication. I would say you're really hung up on the pandemic because poor John had COVID and he had to or he was around someone with COVID and had to um, deal with that. I'm hung up on the fact that Juliet played it too well that she was excited for Paris and so much so that her father like decided to accelerate the wedding. I was like, oh, yeah. Juliet, what have you done? That one always gets me. Um, I think miscommunication happens in real life. So it's, it's all, you know, we have these ideas of, uh, what's going to happen or what's the plan. But if we don't, I mean, you and I have this, right? Mm-hmm. We just, we recently, <laughs> oh, yes. Where I said, let's meet yeah. here, thinking like I've given him a list of places in the same area. And for me, I thought this one place was open, but it wasn't. So then, unfortunately, Tom See, went it was somewhere same else. Restaurant. I was like, oh my gosh, that was the my bad for was not same clarifying. Restaurant, but there were two different locations yeah. that we didn't specify. Correct. Yes, yeah, which happened a previous time. So I thought I had learned from that previous time, but now I just need to do better. So, I mean, that's just like a case in yeah. point that these miscommunications happen in real life. Um, I I guess it's funny to be on the outside, but in terms of both of those situations for us happening, I feel really mm-hmm. bad because I've like made you go that's somewhere okay. else. And then I walked this reason to so like, can you also pick me up because I can't get to where you need to go? Um, so I have kind of like anxiety when, when those sorts of miscommunications happen. Um, I appreciate that. That's why we're (laughs) friends because we understand each other. Uh, yeah. So relatability, I guess. And, and, um, humor if you're on the outside of that particular situation or just like uh, engagement. I think it, it, it gauges engagement because, you and I would not be frustrated at these things if we weren't engaged yeah. with the material. If we didn't care about it or were bored, it would it would just fly over our heads. But because we are engaged with it, that's why we're frustrated on the behalves of the characters or just like the plot in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I jokingly say I rage quit the play when he can't realize that she's waking up. But <laughs> I mean, it, it totally tracks with his character. He has no – he doesn't think before he acts, and that's been his whole problem the whole time. And I agree with you completely what you just said about fate, about the stars, and that, which is when he says, I defy you stars, it works mm. so well because you know that now he is setting in motion the events that are going to get him and his love killed, you know, um, that, mm-hmm. you know, that that is the it's, you know, it's it's Oedipus to trying to defy fate, you know, and and every any time anybody has tried to not tried to go out of their way to make a prophecy not come true. It happens anyway, because you cannot escape the fate. Right. So, um, yeah, so I'm right there. I'm right there with you. Um, the essay question that I have my students fill out, this is the last question I have before, uh, before the, 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 the last question, um, is, uh, they do a DBQ where I give them several quotes of several different characters from several points of the play. And I ask them whose fault is the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. So if 
I gave you that essay question, what would be your <laughs> what would be your point of argument, like your thesis, your who would you choose? Or what would be your main point? Wow. Yeah, I choose your fighter. Um interesting. Ah, Mercutio. Um, uh, Okay, if I, I think everything sort of almost physically starts with him, I will say about that. But if I were to lay the blame heavily on anyone's footsies, and because he has a greater responsibility than the rest of the people, it's the mm. friar. Um, as a man of God, <laughs> he had a, a better, a bigger responsibility. Now, who's to say if he would have denied it? I'm sure they would have gone somewhere else. But he is really the one that like keeps pushing things on. With good intentions, but they're turning out very poorly. And it's all of his plans, and then the plans get all mocked. And now that's not his fault. But I would just say he's sort of the the focal point. Um, He's where the pebble has dropped into the water and the ripples are coming out. He should have not married them or, you know, without permission from the the parents potentially. Um, No, I think the play would tell us that it's just fate. So nobody's really to blame, but I tell my students, you can't sure. take that. You have to choose. I think you're, I think you have one of the strongest arguments. The other really, really strong one is I think their parents are to blame in the, uh, in that, especially like with Lord Capulet with the idea that it is the feud that causes this. And had they been true, more, yep. You know, have they seen past that or had the kids believed that they could see past that, then they would have been okay. So that's another, mm-hmm. that's another angle. I think that's, I think that can, you can prove that just as well. Um, I've had kids yeah. argue Romeo. I've had kids argue, jokingly tell me, well, it's the friar who law, who didn't get the letter to him. I'm like, yeah, but that's like one scene guys. We need, we need a little bit more. Um, so yeah. So, so it, well, would you, okay. sorry to interrupt, would you, is there any answer that you would say is wrong? I mean, that's like a, an essential question, um, right? So is there any wrong answer? Would you, if if they backed it up with claim evidence commentary, would you give it to anybody if they said it was the nurse? I, you know, it's, like it, the, it's uh, the, on the rubric, if you have a clear point, it has evidence and you're being accurate, as far as the way the events unfold in the play, then yeah, I, cause I'm always judging on how it's written not whether or not I agree with you that you're right. So, you know, yeah, if you can prove evidence, I don't really think there's a wrong answer here. Um, you know, uh, because everybody, it's like everybody's, everybody's at fault here, you know, like mm-hmm. everybody bears some sort of responsibility, you know, Peter, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, I mean, like a minor yeah. character, but like, you know, yeah. If if you come at me with a with a with the good evidence and commentary, you know, according to him, like, yeah, you you put the argument up. I'm like, yes, I will, I will. You will get you will get a B or an A on the paper, depending on how it is written, not whether or not I think you're right. 
But yeah, I don't really think there's a wrong answer here because honestly, the right answer is that everybody's at fault. <laughs> you can, it is, it is really fate. It's just this was going to happen and everybody plays a role in it. So even yeah. Paris, I mean, like, you know. Yeah. So the Night Watchman, maybe. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Because the prince plays a role. I mean, like every Benvolio kind of plays a role. So. Mm hmm. Had Rosaline actually loved him, you know, so it's just, you know, so I mean, some of the some of the arguments are a little bit thinner than others. Like, it's like, yeah, you got to pull a little bit from other parts of the play. But um, but yeah, you could probably make an argument for just about anybody. Um, so the last question we always ask in this is, is this required reading? I think it is required reading. I think it is a good gateway into Shakespeare. If we have decided as a nation, as, as a world, I don't know. I don't know what the East is doing in terms of English, um, English uh, curriculum. I think that if we have decided that Shakespeare needs to be on the curriculum, who knows what our governor will do. Then this is, I think, the best one to start with, especially if we're starting in, in ninth. I mean, my school was doing Midsummer in eighth. So if you think about that, it's kind of crazy. And then switch to Macbeth, which is also oh, wow. insane. Isn't that insane? I kind of disagreed with it, but whatever. I'm not in that department. So, yes, I think that's good. I will say I do listeners recommend looking up Ovid's Pyramus and Thisbe uh, in English because I don't expect you to translate it. I was recently translating that again because I was going to cover a Latin class and they were doing that. So I thought, oh, might as well. And uh, it's just so great. And I love it. I feel like it, it's a better relationship because the two youths don't see each other a lot. So it's definitely not like love at first sight. Well, it could be love at first sight, but it's not mm -hmm. lustful, but their, um, their families are not really getting along, but their houses abut one another and there's a crack in the wall. And so they speak to each other in the in several nights. Like it's, it's a longer relationship and it's probably, meteor and has an actual foundation because they're speaking to each other whispering oh, through that crack which is like beautiful latin about like this crack here's all kind of thing the tragedy unfortunately there's a lioness involved in there so that's <laughs> also pretty cool because Romeo and juliet doesn't have that they have pistols sometimes but um they decide to meet at this one tree and um she sees a uh, 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 Thisbe goes there first and then she runs. I guess I'm spoiling it, but she runs away, but her veil drops. And then the, the lioness was like fresh from a kill. So she like pulls up the, the veil and that when her bloody maw and then Pyramus comes and sees this, he's like, no. <laughs> and of course it's connected because a lot of Ovid's stories are connected with an origin of something. So, um, I won't spoil everything, but I just, I feel like that is, um, maybe more beautiful and also more realistic that cause you know, lions, yeah. but, uh, no, just like that relationship I think is more realistic in, in how it developed than Romeo and Juliet. Cause that's, that's hard. I mean, I, you know, people, I love it for a sight exists, this one, it's just hard to understand, to really, it's something I grapple with is like, what is actually going on between mm -hmm. these two after their marriage? What would have been like, which is something that Rosalind does because Romeo, uh, and, you know, do you want me to spoil it? Maybe I should spoil it. <laughs> 
Go ahead. Well, let's just say it answers the question of like, do these people actually oh, really? know each other? Um, so th- I'll just say that because I really want people to watch that. So it's a good question. Like, what would happen if they had survived? Would they be like, oh, gosh, I have nothing in common with this person. Why did I swipe right? It's like uh, the end of The Graduate. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, my gosh. The, yeah, basically, graduate, right? like yeah. in the car and all yeah, awkward. awkward. Like, oh, what yeah. now? Yeah. Yes. So short answer, yes, I think it's required reading and then recommendation. Just look it up. I think it's probably like maybe like 100 lines uh, of mm-hmm. poetry. So I think it wouldn't take you too long to look up Ovid's Pyramids and Thisbee. I agree with you for the same reasons. I will also add that it is kind of a foundational text at this point in that there are a lot of things that have played off it and referenced it in the same way that um, uh, something like uh, the Odyssey or Frankenstein or um, even some of the more, you know, uh, some of Jane Austen or the Bronte stuff has, you know, where where things so much has come from this that going back to that source is important at some point, you know, because kind of like when you think of film and you think of movies like uh, the Godfather or gone with the, even gone with the wind or Casablanca. um, And there are so many, they're referenced so many times that you know, all the references, even if you've never seen the movie and this is kind of the same way. So I think at some point you should go back and read this to see where this all comes from. And make mm-hmm. your own judgment about whether or not you think it's, you know, you think it's a good work or whatever. But I think mm-hmm. its legacy has cemented it in that, yes, it is required reading. And I will say a shocking reference to uh, it is in Westworld. Because mm. that one character keeps saying these violent delights violent have violent ends. And I'm like, what is yeah. what? What? Yeah, there's some really good lines in this play too, and and saying so. Rose by any other name was still sweet. I mean, just things like that where you're like, oh it's my really gosh, cool, yes, some really really good stuff. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So um, we have some Facebook comments from Robert Ward, and Stella's going to read the first, and I'm going to read the second one. About the Latinist, I'm flattered to hear Stella reference me, but <laughs> said that it's as apparently a constantly disapproving figure. Only for me. You're a big fan of Tom, but that's okay. Everyone has their favorites. That said, I've already had brief communication with Stella, and I regretfully must admit, see, <laughs> that I didn't, you're leaning into your characterization now, that I didn't enjoy this book. I think academia and the classics could be interesting, but this novel crosses over into dull and boring, although technically well-written. Many reviews I saw agreed with the sentiment, although I must add that in my case, the novel was also hindered with bad narration in the mm. audiobook. I don't agree with some criticism of the reader, as I think her voice, quote-unquote, fits the character, but only the way I could struggle through was by amping up the narration to 1.2 times, so I guess she's slow. I don't remember DNFing a Stella book, but since I recently did so on a Tom book, I was determined to see this through. I must also admit that I disagree with you too, and in part found this book inaccessible. Yeah, I was just when I was editing that, it was after my conversation uh-huh. with Robert. It's like, oh, we both agreed with this, but I guess maybe it's not as accessible. Maybe we've been around. Um, I almost immediately. <laughs> yeah, and he even mentioned in our communication that someone 
I guess it was a, a review maybe that he had read said that they had taken six years of Latin and it was still like it was too much. And I thought in my like hypercritical brain, well, I've been doing Latin for half of my life by now. <laughs> so I think that's why I was like able to latch mm-hmm. on to it a bit more. Um, but if it takes someone who's been doing Latin for close to two decades now um, to say like, yeah, this is good, then there probably is a problem uh, because I would be like in the 1% in that category. Um, I, I almost immediately wondered if this novel was written strictly for classics academics as the writer offered too much detail creating what I felt was text meant for those insiders who could relate the shared experience but that alternate, nope, Let me try that again. I almost immediately wondered if this novel was written strictly for classics academics as the writer offered too much detail creating what I felt was text meant for those insiders who could relate the shared experience, but that alienates the normie audience. Um, And I, yeah, I think after our discussion and then also talking with Robert, I could see that that is that it might be less accessible than I yeah, I downloaded time. the episode yesterday, and I, I usually listen to them, and I have not had a chance to listen to it yet. So I, I'm actually kind of curious because I, I kind of remember what we were talking. I remember some of our conversation, but it's I'm curious as to like how it to go back and re-listen to it and see what we said about it. Yeah, no, because it was the first. Yeah. It was the first well, book be. in a while that we didn't necessarily like. It totally. That seems wrong. Well. I said I 90% yeah. like it. We were more critical of this one than other books in, in a while, I think. Yeah, probably the last one we did not like was, whatchamacallit, the one we shall not speak of, the 9-11 yes. book. Yes, and and we we, neither, <laughs> we thought that the one about um, Off the Road, the one about the, the Camino de Santiago, the that we we had oh, like it was like yeah. half of a good book in, yeah. in a sense. So, but yeah, so yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so and he so he he makes a comment after um, listening to the episode, and I mentioned that we were doing Romeo and Juliet, and he says that Romeo and Juliet is kind of done to death. So I'm especially looking towards looking forward to a discussion um, on adaptations and variations. I hope you did enjoy this discussion, Robert. Um, like I said, it was a little hard to put together because it has been done to death, right? So it's like, what new insight could you have? <laughs> Um, I don't expect either of you to have such a, a, a such refined taste as I and appreciate a true cinematic experience like Tromeo and Ju- Juliet, but um, there are interesting takes like the David Hewson novel or the comedic film that you can stream on Hulu, uh, Rosaline, that I've been interested to hear your take on. And Stella did talk about the movie already. Yeah. Um, I also should bring up the fact that every time I teach this lately, I have to hear students talk about the movie Nomeo and Juliet. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was yeah, wondering. So, yeah. So, um, so let us know. Let us know what you think about this. Let us know what you think about the play, considering it is such it's, it's ubiquitous in high school curriculum. So, um, so somebody there are definitely people out there who are listening to this who have um, read it, and if you got the chance to reread it or or really just find a good audio production of it, um, because that in my mind really helps people read Shakespeare. That's how I read Shakespeare. Um, uh, I would recommend that. Yeah. But we're done with the Bard, I think, for now, uh, and we're moving on. Until next gra- episode. 
Yeah, no, I, don't <laughs> I don't think Stella's gonna. I don't think Stella's gonna do that to us just yet. So, uh, what are we reading for next time? That'd be kind of nuts if I decide to do that. You know, I was racking my head, racking my head about what to do. I had some queer ideas, but I decided to take the 14-year-old idea of really 13, 14, and shift it somewhere very unexpected. <laughs> so we're going to read, Are You There, God? It's oh, me, Margaret. Wow. <laughs> Judy Bloom. Yes. Are you ready, Tom? We, Tom? No, I'm sorry, I'm writing this down so that I can remember. Um, we we. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were so no, no, bored. I was just, it's, you lost it's, your... um, And that was just recently made into a movie, actually. Uh, so no, hey, how many yeah. times have we discussed menstruation on this show? So we got to keep, keep it up. up. The audience wants yes. to know. All right, are you there, God? It's we're trying to destigmatize yes. periods. So are you there, guys? Me, Margaret, for next time. And until then, Ooh. write us, comment, et cetera, et cetera. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. And listen, if you are watching your lover walk away, drive away, and you have a vision of your lover being lowered <laughs> into a grave, I think that should be a big red flag. Yeah, that's definitely a sign. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Goodbye. I can't do anything, but I would do anything for you. Oh, no. Can't do anything except in love with you, yeah, now All I do is miss you and the way it used to be, you know And all I do is keep the beats, I keep bad, bad company And all I do is kiss Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella Which is brought to you by two, true, that's two true if you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode. How this love struck Romeo Sings the streets of serenades Laying everybody low He's got a love song that he made He finds a convenient street light And he'll, he'll step out of the shade And he'll say something like You and me, babe how about it?